All right, Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to gather together and to worship you corporately, Lord. Thank you for the bride of Christ, which is your body here tonight, Lord. Thank you that uh, each member of your body has been grafted in and put in and given the gift of the Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit, Lord, to edify the body of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you'd use each and every one of us, Lord, to encourage one another in the faith and to build one another up in the faith. I pray that you would knit us together in love. I pray that there would be just amazing bonds here that you form in our midst, Lord. I thank you for being the God that provides, that you're the Jehovah Jireh, Lord. You are everything that we need in every situation, and I thank you for that, Lord. And um, as we come upon the celebration of the birth of Christ, we thank you for the incarnation, Lord, the uh, coming into the flesh and into the world to be our Savior, to save us of our sins. And we thank you for that. Tonight, as we get into your word, I pray that our hearts would be attentive, receptive to receive what you have for us, Lord. May you build us up in your word. You say that if we continue in your word, we're your disciples indeed. And um, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your most holy word. So, Lord, may you be glorified tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you say hello to a couple people, please? Okay, everybody. Come on in, have a seat. Come on in. I don't want to start naming names, but come on in. All right, so good evening, everybody. I wanted to remind you before um, we get into the word tonight that tomorrow night we're having our corporate prayer at 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary, 7 to 8. And so I uh, just encourage you all to come out for that. And then tonight's the last Wednesday for a couple Wednesdays. We won't be meeting until next year, actually, um, in 2024. But only be, we'll be off for two weeks on Wednesday night. So with that, if you grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 6. 2 Corinthians, we are looking at how the Apostle Paul is defending his credentials in the ministry because he, he needed to. He was being attacked as to his credentials. And because he was being attacked, the message was being attacked, the word was being attacked, the truth was being attacked. And so his defense was that it was through his weakness that God was strong. His evidence of the authenticity of the working of God in his life and through his life was the fruit of those who is writing this letter to who are saved because of his ministry. And so what a better um, proof or evidence of God working in a life of a person than the people who have become believers because of the work of that person's Life or the work of God's, um, the Holy Spirit working in, in that person's life. What's interesting about 2 Corinthians is Paul is having to defend himself from different false prophets and false teachers that are going to Corinth 
uh, an area in southern Greece where Paul went and preached the gospel and established a church there and stayed there for 18 months and then left. There would be these other pastors, quote-unquote, that would come through, and they would undermine the teaching of Paul because they would say that he was unimpressive, he was weak, he wasn't stately, he wasn't um, popular in worldly sense, he wasn't um, someone who normally you would look at as a, a upstanding, stately person. And so the whole book is really Paul saying the evidence of God working in someone's life is that he works through our weakness. His power is made evident through our weakness. That when we are weak, he is strong, not the opposite. And that's a message that we need to hear today. That's a message for the church today. It's not when we're the most popular and well looked at that God is working. It's when we're humble and when we're depending on God and when we're not looking to impress people in a worldly sense and trying to be successful in a worldly sense, but we're simply living to honor and please God, counting on His power to do the work, not our own power. And so that brings us up to uh, chapter 6, where he says, we then, so kind of pick it up in the middle of something, we then, as workers together with him, God, we plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The reason we get this feeling that we're picking it up in the middle is because you remember, if you were here last week or heard the message from last week, he just got done stating the purpose for why a person would be willing to suffer and go through hardships and difficulties for the sake of the gospel. And he said that in the end of chapter 5, that we are ambassadors for Christ. He says, as if God were pleading through us. And so that is the life of a believer, to live as one touched and changed by God, and then that one becomes an ambassador for Jesus Christ with the message of Jesus Christ. And what is this message that so many people would be willing to die for? That even now, across the world, there are people that are threatened and in danger of their very lives because of this message. It's found in the very last verse of chapter 5. It says, For he, God the Father, made him God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so that's the message, that anyone who had come to Jesus can have the opportunity to have him take our place in judgment, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that, that, that we can exchange places where we not only could have him take our punishment, which Jesus did on the cross, but then in exchange for that, we can receive his righteousness. The great exchange. This is what happened 
on the cross. It was this great exchange of his life for our life. And so we access that through faith in him. When we put our faith in him, we receive, receive his righteousness. And he receives our sinfulness. And says, this is the gospel. That's the, the message that, that God has entrusted to us. And so that's why in chapter 1 of verse 6, which, by the way, there weren't chapter breaks, and these were, those are man-made things put in the Bible to help us um, to sort of divide the Bible and have places to hang our hats on, but it wasn't originally like that. So he says, because of this gospel ministry, he says, now we're working together with him. That's interesting. You see that in there? That he's working and we join in God's work. So now we're partnering in the ministry with God himself. And he says, as we do that, make sure that you don't receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, what Christ did, don't let it be wasted in your own life by not doing anything with it. Don't let the gospel remain on the shelf with the elf at home. The gospel is our whole life. And so think about what Christ did and then exercise that in your own life daily. So we're not just saved by the gospel, but when we live the same way, we live by faith in what Christ has done for us. We live as forgiven people. We live in the power of God with the purpose of the gospel that sets people free as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. So don't let that be wasted. In verse 2, and he gives an Old Testament uh, verse in Isaiah 49.8. He says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. So behold, he says, now is the acceptable time. So you might want to underline that or highlight that. It's not later. It's not tomorrow. There is no later. There is no tomorrow. All we have is right now. And so we have a sense of urgency. This speaks against any bit of lack of passion that we may have, any bit of complacency that we may be experiencing, he puts a timestamp on it. And the timestamp is always now. The timestamp is never later. It's, it's now in the things of the Lord and what God has called us to do. So be very careful you're not putting off something that God is calling you to do. That you're not ignoring it, not neglecting it, because he says now is the time. Now is the acceptable time. And that could mean if you're not saved and you're hearing this message tonight, this is the time right now. This is all you got. It might not be later. We don't know. And so God is giving you an invitation and an opportunity now. But if you are a Christian, there may be other things in your life you're putting before God. God's kind of lower on the totem pole. 
That's not how you live as a Christian. As a Christian, you live by faith and faith in the Son of God. And there's nothing that should be put ahead of God. Everything is subordinate to our relationship with God. And when that gets mixed up, that's where everything gets mixed up in our life. When Christ is a sinner, that's when everything comes into place in our life. When God is out of focus or on the periphery, that's when everything gets messed up. Because Christ is not meant to be on the sidelines. He's God. And we have this purpose from God to live for God. And so he always has to be first. It's only reasonable that he would be our priority and that we would live for his purposes. So in verse 3, he says, We give no offense in anything, that our ministry may not be blamed. So Paul is describing what a ministry should look like. It's going to be very interesting as we look at this. So when we think about ministry, every individual believer has a ministry. Whether you're exercising yourself in that ministry or not, that's another story. But you have a ministry. And you have a spiritual gift that God has given you. And he's called you to exercise that gift And that gift is primarily to be exercised within the body of Christ to build up the body of Christ. So as he is talking about the ministry, this is what it should look like. This is is where we should take our cues from what ministry should look like. And the first thing he says is that we're very careful on how we do things so that we don't cause an unnecessary offense. So we don't do things that might cause somebody to stumble unnecessarily. Now, that does not mean that he changes the message or waters down the message or is unwilling to confront sin because that's what this, he's doing that to the Corinthians. But what it means is that he's just he's careful about his life, what he says and the things that he does, how he posts on social media, things like that. He's always thinking of, about how this may glorify God or not glorify God. That's a good parameter for all of us. Is what we're posting or what we're saying or what we're doing, is it glorifying to the Lord or does it take away from the glory of the Lord? So his ministry was, he was careful when he, he's telling the Corinthians, when I went there, I was careful the way I handled myself. I knew in your culture, Corinthians, I knew that there would be the potential for people to say that I'm coming to just get money from you guys, just to fleece the flock. And so because of your culture, I had the, the right to uh, take a salary or an offering or something, but I didn't do that because I knew that might, uh, because of your culture, I knew that might offend people or it might cause people to think incorrectly about something. And you know, that's exactly why we don't pass around an offering um, basket There's nothing wrong with doing that. But when 
the Lord brought us out here to plant this church, I sense there is a sensitivity in the area of about charlatans, about people coming to fleece the flock. And there is a back in those days, in that time, there's a, a big prosperity movement gospel. And even in this area where there were those who were faking healing mir- miracles and getting money for that and, you know, send in a, a prayer cloth that they send you and you send it back with money or something and they'll pray for you. And But a lot of that was exposed on TV, on major television network. And so we just said, you know what? We trust the Lord. And so we'll put a box out. And so nobody will be able to accuse us like we're just out here to get money and to fleece the flock. But that, that's the sort of thing. He's just, he's saying we're just sensitive and we're careful how we do things because we don't want to cause an unnecessary offense. And then in verse four, he says, but in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. That word minister is where we get our word deacon, which is where we get our word servant. So what does it mean to minister? It means to serve. So we need to to understand that. Another way to understand the word minister is uh, deacon is to wait on tables. That's that's, That's what that word means. And so when we ever have the wrong idea that to minister is to be in a position where other people take care of you or other people serve you. That's an incorrect view. A minister is one who serves other people, who waits on other people. And so Paul is, uh, that was his ministry, was to serve other people. And they wouldn't be able to accuse him of doing anything else but doing that. So he says, we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulation, in needs, in distresses. So those are some of the things you can expect if you serve the Lord, if you step out in faith, or if you simply live the way God has called you to live. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. If you live like that, then this is what you can expect. So you can expect much patience. So just think about some of these things being described and think about our culture. Where to plan a church is to be on the fast track of trying to have this explosive big thing going on and money poured into it and a big demonstration of marketing prowess and power. And, and here it says, just be, ready, just be ready to be patient. The children of Israel, when they were given the promised land, do you know how they weren't to go in and take the whole promised land at once? Do you know what it says? They were to go in and take it little by little because as they took a little, then they would grow in strength a little so that they would have the ability to take a little more. And then when they took a little more, they would grow in strength a little so they had to have the ability to take a little more. Now, sometimes God does a fast work and a great work and praise God for that. But I think most of the time he works over time through patience and here through tribulations. 
So we can expect that. And then he says, in needs. So that's another thing. If you're going to plant a church or you're going to go out on the mission field, just, this is kind of what to expect. You're going to have, have to pray for your needs. Things might not be readily available. Maybe not even water and food. Those are needs. And then he says in distresses, he goes on, he says in stripes, which means the flogging, the, the beating, the torturing, imprisonments, tumults, which is, means chaos, in labors, sleeplessness, in fastings, by, so he changes the phrase here, so those are the things that we're in that happen, then he says these are the the things that we do, we do these by, so by purity, so that's our attitude in these things. We, even when we get distressed and pressured and in hardship, we continue in these things of purity, and then he says, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, the armor of the righteousness on the right hand and on the left hand, speaking of the spiritual weapons of our warfare. So verse 6 and 7, you, might, you could just circle that and say, that's how we continue on in the faith. That's what it looks like. So we have all these things that happen to us, but the things that we do are found in verses 6 and 7 and in those verses, you find a person completely dependent on God and not all these cheesy gimmicks. And if we're going to depend on God and trust in God and allow the Holy Spirit to work, it's going to be like verses 6 and 7. If we're going to depend on and exercise ourselves in worldly techniques and our flesh instead of the power of the Spirit, then it's not going to look like that. It's a different story. Because what we're doing is having a work of the flesh and not a work of the Spirit. He continues on in verse 8. He says, By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers, yet true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live as chast, uh, chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. That's the ministry. The ministry is just one big, unusual contradiction where the Lord is continuing to provide miraculously, to encourage, to build up, and to strengthen. At the, at the same time, Satan is there buffeting, attacking, looking to destroy and rob and steal. Amazing, isn't it? If you're going to step into a life of faith, which is the only way really to live as a believer, it is very exciting. It is very full. There is never a dull moment. 
And sometimes in ministry, you wish for a dull moment, and they are few and far between. And yet, that is where you discover the goodness and the power of God. There's a reason Satan wants us and tempts us to be sidelined, bench warmer Christians. When we're doing that, what are we doing? We're watching other people do this. We're watching other people use their gifts. And, and being a Christian is, is not a bench warmer sport. It's a participation sport. So be careful you don't fall into the trap of watching other people do these things. Watching other people experience the power of God. Watching other people or depending on them to do it for you. When God says, hey, I've given you a gift, exercise your gift and experience the life that I have for you. This exciting life that I have for you. So no wonder so many people can get bored being a Christian. Because they may not understand that watching is not what God has called us to do. Get in the game. Allow the power of the Holy Spirit to work in your life to the extent where you're experiencing the power of God working in you and through you. And you know what? That, you will crave that. You will long to see the power of God working in your life. There's nothing better than that. And this is the, the amazing life of a believer, a ministry. You all have a ministry. And when you step out in faith in the ministry, like Peter walking on water, all you have to keep you up is faith. If you stay in the boat, you have a lot of other things you can secure yourself with. But when you step out in faith and you walk on water, keep your eyes on Jesus and you stay afloat. And this is how God wants us to live. So he says in verse 11, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you and our heart is wide open. And you are not restricted by us. You are restricted by your own Affections. In other words, Paul's saying you're, you're, close, you're closing yourself off to me and my ministry in some regards. And he's saying that's not on my behalf. In other words, he, he's probably suggesting to them that there are rumors or things going on, on that, that Paul is closed off or he won't talk to you. Or, and he's saying... I'm wide open to you. I'm, my life is an open book and my office is an open door. He's saying, the problem is you have closed yourself off to me. And probably because of gossip and because of those false teachers coming that have tainted their view of Paul, that they've sort of pulled themselves back. In verse 13, he says, Now, in return for the same, my openness to you, I speak to you as children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? 
And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them, I will, I will walk among them, and be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them, and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So his final plea here in this section about ministry is not to be unequally yoked. So the, the metaphor is two animals in a field with a yoke or this wooden apparatus placed on two different animals. And those animals go and they plow a field. And so if you have two different animals, then there's an unequal yoke and that plowing will be really crooked. So say you have an ox and a lamb and they're yoked together, it's not going to work. So he uses that metaphor and then he gives all these examples of why that will never work. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is the difference between light and darkness. How different is that? Opposite. Doesn't work together. He goes on and says that this, this difference is so different that when we make these unholy alliances, we are actually compromising our faith and the things that God has given to us. We are actually partnering with those whose father is the devil when our father is God the Father. That's the difference. Particularly, he's speaking, when he says yoked with unbelievers, he's speaking about contractual agreements. So, the most obvious one is in a marital agreement. Secondarily, in a business agreement, a contractual business agreement, where you're coming into business with someone that's not a, a believer. So that doesn't mean that we can't work for unbelievers or associate with unbelievers. It means that we're not to have a particular contractual relationship with an unbeliever where we're really dependent on them, almost as if to move forward in one direction that we would have to be on the same page as that other person. And for a believer, it means we would have to compromise our faith. So if we ever have to compromise our faith to do something, then we shouldn't be in that arrangement. We shouldn't be in that agreement. And so as he says that, he's telling the Corinthians, look, you're 
partnering and associating with these false teachers. And that's not going to lead anywhere good. And what many people mistakenly think is that they can have a combination of God and the world or a combination of truth and not truth. And you can't. The Bible is very clear. It's either one or the other. You can't love the world and love God at the same time. It's either one or the other. And so he's encouraging the church at Corinth to repent of those relationships that are not of God and to get involved in the ministry of God that they've been called to and equipped to and anointed to do. So chapter 7, it says, therefore, so obviously shouldn't be a chapter break there, still part of what he's saying. Having these promises, what promises? He's saying that as we come out of the world and devote ourselves to God, that we are sons and daughters of God. So that's our identity. Our identity is that as children of God, as a son of God or a daughter of God. So he says because of that and because of that promise, we should, he says, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The reason he says that is because our new identity in Christ is such that he has, past tense, washed away all of our sins. Practically, he wants us to live according to our new identity as free people, as people who have been washed of their sins. Instead of going back and living in the lifestyle that we're actually saved out of. For the believer, there is an ambition or a desire to live for God. And that's what's different about someone who's a believer or born again and someone who's not, is prior to being a believer, we live for ourselves. We just do our own thing and do what we want to do, and, and then we get saved. Now we're living for God. We live for his purposes. So a big part of that is God wants to continually work in our heart and our minds to make us like our positional status in Christ, which is blameless and sinless. As we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, who is sanctifying us, and cleansing us, and bringing us by a process out of the world, and out of our obsession with ourselves. that's what God will do in the believer's life, then we will live in a different way, where we, we live for his purposes, and not our own, and that's what he's saying here. He's saying, the way many of you in Corinth have been living is, You've been living as unsaved people. 
There's nothing that will bring about a lack of peace in a person's life who's truly been saved, but yet they're still living for their sin. That could even be very questionable if that person is truly saved or not, because when we're saved, what changes is we have a desire to live for God and not for ourselves. It is possible to be backslidden. The Corinthians were uh, true believers, but it says that they were carnal or fleshly. But the point is, he's calling them to live the life of a believer, practically, authentically, as God has called them to live. So in verse 2, he says, Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. So it's interesting. He kind of seems to keep intimating that they are kind of shut off towards him. And if you recall, he sent 1 Corinthians, that letter that we went through, and it was a rebuking type of letter, a confrontational letter, a necessary letter. And so... Like often happens, we can get upset when confronted about something or called out on sinful lifestyle or practice and just want to avoid the person who called us out on that. So you keep getting this feeling like, look, Paul's saying, I I love you guys. I, I understand that the reason that I address the things that I had to address is because I love you, not because I don't love you. Faithful, the Bible says, are the wounds of a friend. And so that's what he's saying. So he's saying, it's okay. Let's, we, we can be in fellowship with one another. Don't close off to me. In verse 3, he says, I don't say this to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together, and to live together. We're in this together. Paul is saying, I'm not saying things from an ivory tower pointing down to you, saying, you are below me, and I don't have any struggles or difficulties or problems. He's saying, look, we're all in this together. We all need each other. We're all on the same team. We're all on the same page. And we're here to help one another, encourage one another, all the way to the finish line. So in verse 4, he says, Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all of our, he says, our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So what he's mentioning is Titus brought word back from Corinth to Paul after the confrontational letter that Paul sent to them, And Titus came back to Paul with a report from Corinth telling them that these guys in Corinth, they received what you said. 
That is the greatest news that Paul could have heard. He was wondering because he was supposed to, supposed to meet uh, Titus earlier, but he did, Titus didn't show up and he's wondering, he's stressed out. What happened? Are they going to talk to me again? Or are they just going to cut me off? And then they, finally he gets word back from T- Titus and he said, hey, they love you. They listened to what you said. They repented of their sins. And, and Paul's very excited about that. He says in verse 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the cons- uh, consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So they were mourning, which means they were sad about what Paul said and their sadness at the confrontation of their sin caused them to repent of their sin and be restored. And Paul was waiting and he didn't get the the letter. He didn't know the report from Paul on what was going to happen. And then Paul gets the message from Titus. Hey, look, they love you. They're happy you told them about this. They're repenting. It seems like Paul's a little surprised. In verse 8, he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. You see Paul's struggle. Like, I'm not sorry I wrote it, but man, I, I, I was really sad and bummed out and I didn't, you know, I didn't hear from you and I waited and it shows you how much he loved them. So he, he didn't just say, you guys are all losers and cut them off and never talk to them. He, he had a, a very tender heart towards them. In verse 9 it says, now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but here it is, that your sorrow led to what? Repentance, that's the point. That's the point. That you receive what I said and your desire was to be right with God more than to be upset about someone calling you out on sin. That shows a lot about the Corinthians, doesn't it? As we've been looking at the Corinthians and reading about the Corinthians, you just get this idea that that they are just sinful, carnal people, and there is no hope for them. And you see that they responded. Sometimes you're even wondering, how could they even be Christians? But this is the evidence. The evidence is that they they were sorry that they did these things. And their sorrow turned to repentance, which means turning away from their sin. He says, for you were made sorry in a godly manner. What does that mean? Does that mean we can be made sorry in an ungodly manner? It does. Let's read on. That you may suffer loss from us in nothing. So here it is. Godly sorrow. So here's a certain kind of sorrow. Godly sorrow. How do we know if our sorrow or sadness is godly? It will, it will produce repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted. The other kind of sorrow, 
The sorrow of the world produces death. So we could just be sorry about consequences of something we did. So you just heard a police siren there. So what if that police siren was for us and one of you? And one of you was taken to jail for something that you really did. And you're really crying and you're sorry, but you're just sorry that you got caught and you have to be in jail now. And you're not turning to the Lord. You're turning to your own sorrow, almost like worshiping your own sorrow. Finding solace in being sorry and crying. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow keeps one away from God. Godly sorrow will cause one to turn to God. That's the difference. So when our sorrow turns us to God, that's godly sorrow. When our sorrow, if our sorrow makes us mad at God, if our sorrow makes us mad at our circumstances, that's worldly sorrow. That's selfish sorrow. That's unproductive. And it says that actually leads to death. That won't help you. So in verse 11, he says, Observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. Here's what happens. What diligence it produces. So godly sorrow will produce a a diligence. It'll break us of our self. Uh, Matthew 5, uh, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So it, it breaks us. We come to the realization of our need for God and specifically our need for His mercy and our need for His grace. That will cause a person to be diligent in their faith. It says, it produced in you what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, What zeal, what vindication. In all these things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong. Remember, there is an individual in the congregation that they were not correcting or rebuking or addressing that was having an affair with his father's wife or his mother-in-law. We're not sure exactly what, but something very um, sinful. And nobody was addressing it. So this is what he's talking about. I wrote to you and I didn't do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered the wrong. So the individual that was involved in this sin, he says it wasn't specifically for that individual, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. In other words, that his asking the Corinthian church to deal with the sinful situation was even more about the people who turned a blind, a blind eye to the sin, that they were sinful for allowing the gross immorality within the fellowship, and he's saying, so as he, he confronted them about not dealing with that sin, and they experienced sorrow, 
and they repented of that, then the benefit of that really came to the church as a whole. So the church as a whole became purified and cleansed and the way God had designed for them. So in verse 13, he says, Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort. And we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus when Titus went to Corinth to check on them. And then he returned with a great report. He says, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you receive him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you and everything. He is really encouraged and blessed and excited because of God working in the life of the Corinthians in a, a difficult, uncomfortable, unpleasant situation. But what we learn from that is that when, when people are humble and really desiring God to do something in their life, it's a beautiful thing to see the results of what happens when someone responds to either a positive or a negative, either a good thing or a difficult thing, whatever it is. But the point is we all need to grow in God. And we all need to be humble before God and that growth process is often painful. It's a blow often to our pride. It's a blow to ourself. And don't let those things stop you from continuing on in the faith and the things of God. And that happens unfortunately a lot. Keep going in the faith. And we're going to keep going in chapter 8. So moreover, brethren, moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So a particular set of churches. Macedonia is in Europe. These churches Paul established. It says these churches... These churches are amazing. You got to hear this. In great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. So these churches were noted by great trials of affliction, but they had this abundance of joy in those trials. And they had deep poverty, but it says they were liberal in the riches. What Paul is saying here, and you remember, Paul had been encouraging the churches uh, 
that he was traveling around to to take collections for him to bring to the church in Jerusalem. The churches in the area of Macedonia were not doing well financially, but they gave a lot. And Paul is saying, that's amazing that they had this heart of giving. And this giving was sacrificial, we're told. It it cost them, but they trusted in the Lord so much that they were joyful in giving out of their lack of abundance. He says in verse 3, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and even beyond their ability, they were freely willing. So you might want to underline that, freely willing. Just, they have these just really free-giving hearts. And it is interesting, statistics point out that the people that have the less are often the ones that give the most percentage-wise. And a lot of times we hear about these big philanthropic donations and things like that from certain people, and that's good. But if you look at percentage-wise, the people that often have the less are the ones that give the most. Isn't that interesting? This is what he's pointing out here. In verse 4, he says, imploring us with much urgency. that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hope, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. Then to us by the will of God. Do you see what cause them to be so free in their giving? Here's the secret. They gave themselves to the Lord. So when we give ourselves to the Lord, then we easily can give to the needs because we're the Lord's. We're in the Lord's hands. We don't need to worry about where our provision's going to come from. Because we give ourselves to the Lord. We're His now. So we can live this amazing life of an open hand. God puts in, God takes out. You remember that missionary that was here a couple weeks ago? That was amazing. They just have an open hand. God puts in, God takes out. It's up to Him. He gives, He takes away. Blessed be the Lord. This was their attitude. So in verse 6, it says, We urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. Speaking about he started a collection fund in Corinth when he was there, and he's going to come back and finish it. And I, I love the way that's put, because it's important to finish what we start. And I think sometimes the church is filled with incomplete and unfinished projects. Verse 6, so we urge Titus 
that as he begun, so would also complete by this grace that is in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all difference, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace, the grace of giving as well. He says, I speak not by commandment, so I'm not putting this heavy trip on you. I'm just saying, look, this giving, you've demonstrated this amazing gift of generosity. Just, I want to encourage you to complete what you started. So it's not by command, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. So Christ is their example. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. So this in Corinth, this was collection that was going on a year ago. But now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack, referring to the, the manna. And the point is, sort of like what we do here in the opportunities that we've had to give to those missionary endeavors in places where they have nothing. So we have opportunities and we have things. So we're able to take and give to those ministries who are ministering the word of God, but they just don't have the resources. And so we're, we've been able to be a blessing to many works around the world because of the same thing of taking and giving what we have. So in verse 16, it says, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. They took care of Titus really well. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent him with the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. So now it's focusing on someone who went with Titus, but we don't really know who that is. But it's kind of interesting the way this is spoken about. Verse 19, not only that, but 
who this person was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, the money, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. But isn't it interesting, there is an individual, there's just an acknowledgement by all the churches that, hey, this person is called. We don't even know who this person is, but he's being pointed out. And this is often how God's calling is within the church body to certain positions within the church body. It's just a recognition by, hey, this person is anointed. They're called. There's something about this person. There's agreement across the board about this individual. In verse 20, it says, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many ways, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. And so this amazing, we still have time, but I'm going to stop there. This this is an amazing letter because we're, we're sort of getting this curtain pulled back on just how Paul would interact and how the church would function and how people are responding. And when I read this and study this, I realize it's just the same as now. It's the same stuff. The same things going on. And over all these years from the time of this writing, there's nothing new under the sun. And the the point is, we're like the Corinthians. The point is, we're like Paul. The point is, we're like Titus. We're like the individual that went with Titus. And when we cut through all of the extraneous outside things, our actions that we do, when we do them in the Lord, become a blessing to all. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the challenges, we're seeing struggles, we're seeing difficulties, but through all of that, we're seeing through human weakness, the power of God coming forth out of the life of these individuals and bringing fruit to God. And that's what he is doing here in our midst. And that's what he wants to continue to do and do even more and more. And how does that work? It works by us first being willing to offer ourselves to God. And then when we do that, we begin to walk in a way where we walk for his purposes and we, we ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to talk to? Where do you want me to serve? And we're just filled with the life of Christ. 
And the life of Christ cannot be contained. It will be the light of the world. It will be the light of your family, the light of your neighborhood, the light of your work. And that's what we're called to be. The light of Christ. Ambassadors of Christ. Pleading with people to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Amen. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight and I thank you for my brothers and sisters and just ask you to bless them, Lord. And I pray, Lord, this week would just be filled with um, mindful thoughts of your incarnation, of you stepping down into this world, Lord, and humbling yourself and help us to be mindful of all the significance of that. And Lord, all of us here tonight, may we just take a step of faith today and just just surrender our lives fully and completely to you, Lord. There's something that we've been putting off or hesitating to surrender or wanting to get to eventually. I pray that today would be our day that we would just say, Lord, take all of me and just do whatever you want with me. I'm yours, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night. Prayer tomorrow night. And then uh, Sunday morning, we're having our Christmas Eve service. God bless you guys. We'll see you then.